Amber Brown, podcaster in the accounting, finance, and fintech space. Our flagship show, Accounting Influencers, is now one of the world's leading podcasts in this genre and has a number of spin off shows over the years. This particular show is now focusing on talent, which, let's face it, is one of the biggest challenges for the accounting world at the moment. And the format stays the same. I interview the experts, the influencers, and the leaders in many different aspects of culture, talent employer brand succession, talent attraction, retention, soft skills, accounting credentials, qualifications, leadership, mental well-being, the brand of the profession, employee value propositions, employee engagement, increasing capacity and headcount in accounting firms, career development, and the usual HR, learning development, DEI, the great resignation, a ton of other talent-related issues in accounting. And whether you're hiring or being hired, happy where you are or considering a move, leading or following, employed or self-employed, totally skilled up and super employable or needing to refresh your skills, sharpen your personal brand. This is the perfect podcast for you accounting, finance and tech professionals to stay competitive, relevant and informed about all things talent in accounting. So let's get moving with today's show. Accounting Influencers Broadcast Network presents Influencers in Accounting. Welcome to a special bonus interview with me, Rob Brown, and the legend that is Ron Baker. Good day to you, Ron. Hello, Rob. Thanks for having me. Ron, it's great to have you on behalf of the Accounting Influencers Podcast Network. We have shows going out every day of the working week to the accounting bookkeeping CPA audience. You've been in this game a long time, Ron. Some of our listeners may not have come across you. I can't believe that, but tell us really briefly about your legacy in the accounting world, what you've been on with. I don't know if it's a legacy yet, but uh, I hope not anyway. Um, I started my career in a big eight accounting firm, probably like a lot of people from my era. Um, and that's how you carbon date a CPA. You listen to, they say big eight, big six, big five, big four. Uh, after I left there about two and a half years, I started my own firm and I realized right away that the billable hour was a lousy, and I mean lousy customer experience. Uh, back in those days, we used the term total quality service. And I was studying outfits like Disney and Lexus and FedEx and Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom and all these companies that were legendary service providers. And I told my partner, I want to emulate that. We need to up our, we need to up our game. And that's how I got into value pricing. And I started doing it. We started implementing value pricing in 1989. Me and my partner, we knew nothing. There was nobody on the circuit talking about it. There were no books about it, at least in the professional space. And we made every mistake under the book, but our customers loved it. And because we were able to get rid of our timesheets pretty quickly, our team members loved it. So I got really excited about this, started teaching it in 1994 to Cal Society of CPAs and other state societies. In 98, I published my first book and then Paul Dunn read that book. And that's, I met Paul, Paul and Rick started waving the book around worldwide on stage and uh, the rest is history. And you and me spoke off camera, Ron, the value pricing movement you started so many years ago, it has burgeoned into a number of mentors, gurus, consultants out there to the point where you're letting that go. You're done with that now and moving on because you feel that that's well served now. I do. I really do. Um, you know, we've paved, we've paved the way 
for a lot of uh, these consultants that are really bright. They're they're adding tremendous value to the firm. You know, people like Mark Wickersham, and oh, there's too many to name, <clears throat> and they keep popping up. Um, and I'm I'm very gladdened by that. But you know, it's time for me to go back to the left side of the diffusion curve and and go back into the innovator space. <clears throat> and <clears throat> and redo the business model. Yeah, we had your good friend Ed Kless on the show just recently and uh, talking about how disruptive things are at the moment and how innovative things need to be. Just talk to us about what kind of shape you feel the accounting profession is in right now, Ron. I mean, it's in good shape. I mean, people are busy. They're making money. Uh, the demand for their services has you know, never been higher. Uh, the COVID thing, I think, really uh, shocked us into the need to really uh, nurture relationships. I think a lot of firms are now reevaluating the number of customers they have, which finally is a good thing because, I mean, Rob, I've been asking practitioners all around the world, why'd you get into this profession? And now some people will say the money, some people will say the security of always knowing I'll have a job, but the overwhelming majority of people say to help people. You can't, you can't help people at a meaningful, deep level if you've got 2,000 clients. You just can't do it. I don't care what you say, relationships don't scale. <laughs> They don't. And this is a relationship business. And I think it's time our business model recognized that fact. Our business model monetizes transactions, not relationships. Well, let me ask you this, Ron. In 2003, you wrote The Firm of the Future. That's 19 years ago. Have you seen that firm come to pass? No, not in all manifestations. And you, you'd never expect it to. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect firm. There's always areas every firm could work on. Um, but what, what it did do, I believe, is it introduced a new vocabulary into the profession. We now talk a lot more about human capital. We talk a lot more about intellectual capital, social capital, structural capital. Some firms have even adopted after action reviews, which in my opinion are the supreme replacement for timesheets and this kabuki theater that we call the annual um, performance review appraisal. This thing needs to go as well. This is just a joke ritual that I don't know why it hangs around in so many firms. Um, and also we introduced the, the, what is affectionately known as the effing debate. So the difference between being efficient and being effective. <clears throat> now we can be efficient with technology and with things, but when it comes to human relationships, we have to be effective. Nobody defines their marriage as efficient. And I think it's the, the pendulum is, is tilted so far over to the other side of everybody's worried about tech, their tech stack and <clears throat> automating this and that and workflow. And but this profession is not about that. Yes, you need it. It's a table stake. It's like having restrooms, but it does not provide a competitive advantage. And we spend way too much time on things that don't provide competitive advantage that's available to, to everybody. Well, the point is to differentiate yourself from everybody. So, you know, I've, I've put a lot more work into strategy and positioning and what commands premium pricing. You know, if you want to go to the market with a skim price strategy like an Apple, like a FedEx, you've got to you've got to up the game. You can't go to the market with common services or a common offering. If you go to the market with a common offering that everybody else is giving, that everybody else is doing, you're going to command common prices. You want uncommon prices? You got to go to the market with an uncommon offering, and that means it has to be plus. This was a term that Walt Disney used uh, for his uh, you know his pet project Disneyland. He said, we constantly have to plus the park. And that's still part of Disney's DNA. They constantly look for ways to enhance the guest experience. It has nothing to do with services, has nothing to do with pricing, has everything to do with, you know, 
creating a, a great customer experience and making sure those people come back. I want to go into that in more detail because you brought up this new book with Paul Dunn called Time's Up and that the basic premise of the book is what would happen if Disney started accounting firms. So I want to dip into that in a moment. But first, let me just ask you, since 2003 then and the future at the firm of the future, we've had a global recession with the economic crisis of the late 2008, 9, 10s. We've had the pandemic. So what has changed in the accounting profession since that time? Wow, I'm not sure a whole lot has changed. Does that depress you that it's not a whole lot, Ron, or was that to be expected? I, I, I've kind of expected it. You know, everybody thinks talking about advisory is, is all new. Well, you know, Rob, as well as I do, that Paul Dunn and Rick Payne have been talking about this since, you know, geez, what, the 80s? Um, you know, and, and has the profession really pivoted to advisory? Now, some have. But most have not because we are buried in compliance. I've been hearing my whole career compliance is, is on the way out. It's never going to be on the way out because there's governments, there's tax. And I don't care if tax gets automated by the government, like in some countries, there's still going to be a need for, for the guidance of a CPA. So, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> it, it does depress me because I, I think the biggest problem in the profession is relevancy. You know, our, our major flagship product, the audit, is is a complete joke. It's only used by 5% of the investors uh, to make to make investment decisions. So all this talk about protecting the shareholders, protecting the investors, providing capital markets with information so the cost of capital can be lower. It's all nonsense. Baruch Lev is an accounting professor at New York. I think he's now retired, wrote a great book on this called The End of Accounting. That book should have been a nuclear bomb dropped on this profession because it basically said that the audit is completely useless. Nobody's using it. Yet we're spending a fortune on it. And what's it really providing? I was just going to cite Professor Baruch Lev. He's been on the show, Ron, and uh, in forecasting the death of accounting, he said just that. And he said how not fit for purpose the documents produced by the audit and the financial reporting, how that doesn't really tell investors what they need. He talked about, it doesn't talk about human capital. It doesn't talk about brand and training and development and investment in people and a whole slew of things that... Good stakeholders need to make decisions on the health of that business. So we're coming to a new era, don't we? Yeah, I, you know, and now the, the other thing that depresses me, I have to say, and I know I'm an outlier on this, but so is Ed Kless. Uh, I'm really worried about the CSG movement. I, I think uh, a, the CPA profession is grossly unequipped to take on such a big political issue and try and put numbers social around governance. it. governance, yeah. I think it's a complete joke movement. I think it's going to throw a wet blanket on innovation and dynamism and economic growth. Um, I, it's a political ploy. It's trying to overtake corporations and drag them into politics. And I don't want corporations involved in politics. That's why we have representative government. That's their job. And they are accountable to the people. If I put a CEO in charge of environment, he's not, he's not accountable to anybody. Who's he accountable to? Larry Fink? Davos? Give me a break. This stuff does not belong in the business world. But that that's a different rabbit hole. Well, we've, we've got a situation at the time of this recording, Ron, where the World Cup of soccer is just about to happen in Qatar. And we know about their human rights issues and their ethical violations and all of that. But the, the message from the football associations to the footballers playing the game is don't get involved in politics. And you're almost into accountants, don't get involved in the ESG, it's beyond your remit. Yeah, I mean, we have the same issue with the NBA, you know, and, and stifling speech and being involved with China because it's the biggest market. I mean, look, the thing about ESG that I, I don't, nobody seems to understand this, but, you know, there's multiple different rating agencies. So 
Recently, I read one uh, where the Chinese oil company has a higher ESG score than Exxon. And the Ru a Russian bank, a Russian bank, and this was even during the Ukraine war, has a higher ESG score than Chase Morgan. Mic drop. This shit is useless. It's useless. There's no standards. The metrics are all over the board. It's crazy. It, it's the equivalent of trying to make uh, McDonald's accountable to, you know, for, for the body mass index of every person that eats a Big Mac. It's crazy. Well, let's talk about Time's Up and this question of what would happen if Disney started accounting firms. I, I'm going to quote something you put in, in this piece of work about from Walt Disney about plussing. And he says a movie or a picture is something you can wrap up, turn it over to technical, but you're done. Snow White's a dead issue. I wanted something live, something that I could grow, something I could keep plussing with ideas. And the park, the theme park is that. Not only can I add things, but even the trees keep growing. It gets more beautiful every year. I can't change the movie, but I can change the park. Just unpack that a bit for us, because there's a lot of emotion in that. There is. And, and uh, you know, the, the more I study Walt Disney, the more I learn from him. <laughs> and um, the, the plussing idea is just absolutely brilliant. And he just, he, you know, he said, well, when I do a movie, I put it in the can and it goes into the theater and you know, that's it. I can't, he hated sequels. He didn't, he said, how do I, how do I, how do I follow up with three little pigs? You know, so he didn't like the whole sequel thing, but, um, he just wanted to make that park a living, breathing thing that, that could be constantly changed and updated and with an enhanced customer experience, giving that customer a sense of wonderment and delight every time they come back they find something new you know that, that wasn't there before and that's what keeps them coming back generation after generation when i went to disney university one of the first stats they threw at us is 89 percent of the people in this park today have been here before that, that is astonishing for 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 a park you know that gets i don't know 30 million 40 million visitors a year uh so i love that plussing idea and i think it's time for us to up our game what does plussing look like for accountants i believe and this is why i start with you know what what would happen if disney opened accounting firms when i ask that question people say well it would be more expensive it would be a better customer experience uh it would probably have fewer customers in any one firm so for me it's all about the customer experience it's all about going back to why we got into this profession to help people can't help people if you have over a thousand customers. Can't help people if you're sitting around monetizing services. You know, we're on a fee-for-service treadmill as bad as doctors are, at least in this country. Um, you know, it, it, it's not what the doc... It, it, when you're in a fee-for-service model, it's what you do to people rather than what you do for people because you're, you're trying to sell services. You're on this constant treadmill. So I think plussing to me means fewer customers, higher price, but unbelievable coverage, like in other words, whatever you need that we're capable of doing and it's on a subscription business model. We'll go on to that, but let's talk about the classic adoption curve for a moment, Ron. We had one of our Air members, that's the Accounting Influencers Roundtable over here in the UK, uh, mentioned that innovation is not a thing that accountants are associated with. He credited them with being a little bit more agile throughout the pandemic that we perhaps would have given them credit for. But by his research, only 9% of accounting firms are are in the, that innovation or early adopters phase. Now, the classic curve has 2.5% 2, 2 innovators, 13.5% early adopters. But the point you make in the book is that that leaves 84% of companies out there that are copying and not innovating. And that's probably even less in the accounting profession. If we take 9% as innovating and being progressive, that's 91% that are not. So 
How, where do you go with that? It's hard. You know, a couple of guys wrote a book called Karaoke Capitalism, and they pointed this out as the big problem. Everybody's benchmarking their competition and, you know, staring at each other's navel and we're all bathing in the, you know, the same dirty bathwater. We listen to the same consultants. We go to the same conferences. We get the same shtick from the vendors and the publishers who service us. Um, nobody's looking outside their industry. I always wanted to benchmark, but not in the accounting profession. I wanted to benchmark Disney and Nordstrom and FedEx and Lexus, these companies that were killing it in terms of customer experience. So I think that innovation curve uh, is, is incredibly important and we have to keep sliding back to the left of it. And you're right, the accounting profession is not known for it. And I think that's one of the problems. It's why we've become less relevant. Well, the accounting profession, with hourly billing is so far behind the game. You talk in your book about the evolution of the business model in accounting firms from hourly billing right through to through fixed fee, through value pricing to subscription. Just talk us through that a little bit for people that haven't come across that yet, Ron. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, great question. Hourly billing is, you know, when I started the profession, we all did timesheets, we all had an hourly rate, but we still offered fixed prices. But traditional hourly billing basically essentially prices the inputs, you know, how much effort, how many hours did we put in, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's totally inward focusing. It completely ignores value. Then it, about when the time I came into the profession in 84, maybe a little bit sooner, we started to move to fixed prices. Now, those fixed prices were still built up by looking at hours. If anything happened beyond that budget, we would normally bill it and bill it in arrears. You know, we didn't even use change orders. We just sent the client a bill and said, oh, we had to do more work, you know, and we'd stay out there in that extra week or whatever it was. And so that was the era of fixed fees. And then when I kind of hit the scene, we started teaching value pricing. And rather than pricing the inputs, we want, or the outputs, the services, we wanted to price the customer because we posited, of course, that all value is subjective. And so different customers value different things. And of course, that's where you get the concept of options and behavioral economics and all of that. But that was pricing the customer. And I'm not sure we fully grasped that. Even in firms that, that value price to this day, I still think they tend to look at the outputs. L look at their list of services. Look at their list of three options. What differentiates those three options? It's the number of services they're doing. That's not what I'm talking about in Time's Up. I'm talking about giving people coverage for anything they need that we're capable of doing. So the subscription model doesn't price the customer, it prices the relationship. And that's the step change, isn't it? You described the subscription model as a, a periodic recurring payment for frictionless, ever-increasing value and serial transformations. Unpack that a bit for us, Ron, because that's that's profound. That that's a suitcase phrase, isn't it? It needs a lot. Of, it's a few suitcase phrases. It needs a lot of uh, unpacking. Uh, periodic recurring payments, obviously, is is subscription, whether that's monthly or quarterly. And there's a lot of debate in the subscription world about what that cadence should be. Well, you know, what that rhythm of payment should be. Should it be monthly? I've kind of landed on the fact that I believe it should be monthly, and we can talk about that. But so that's the first thing. Frictionless, ever increasing value is because the customer experience needs to surface simplicity. It needs to be frictionless, whether it's digital or face-to-face, -face, however your customer wants to interact with you. It should, it should be convenient. It should be easy. There should be no hurdles. Um, and I, I, because I think we compete against any organization that has the capacity to increase our customers' expectations. So when your customers go online and visit your website, they're comparing your entire digital experience to Amazon, one click. Good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, Amazon is a master 
at, at, at the digital experience. And that this is what I mean by upping our game. But to your point though, Ron, another example, you walk into a hotel lobby, a nice hotel, that front desk experience gets compared to walking into the foyer of your accounting firm, doesn't it? It does. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, when you step into a Ritz Carlton or a Four Seasons and you ask, oh, where's the ballroom? They don't point. They don't hand you a map that you can't read. They escort you there and have a conversation. Now, that means that they have a higher level of service, of course, and that's why they can charge a, a premium price because people really value that. Um, the other thing that uh, is that ever increasing value, that's because I couldn't fit plussing in that description. Uh, <laughs> but that's what we mean by that. The innovation is baked into this model. You constantly have to add new offerings, just like Amazon Prime or Netflix is constantly dropping new content. And, and look how that's disconnected from the price, by the way. Every time they drop a show I'm binging on, they don't raise my price. You know, So what we've done with subscription is we've removed the flow of work from the pricing decision we've reduced the cognitive load on the customer. They don't have to reevaluate the entire relationship like they do under value pricing every year. They're, they're used to paying it monthly and they're seeing more benefits being added, more value being added. And it's just, it becomes recurring revenue as opposed to reoccurring revenue, which is another really important distinction that I make because recurring revenue is gonna be valued by the, whoever buys your firm much more than reoccurring revenue Re reoccurring revenue you know we, we and we do have evergreen revenue in accounting as you know I and mean, we've got all the compliance work tax return every year audit whatever it is but when somebody comes to buy your firm i don't care how big or small it is they're going to take your revenue and they're going to put it into two buckets one's reoccurring and one's recurring and they're going to value the recurring at multiples of four to ten but not the reoccurring that might be valued at one times Revenue. Explain to us what serial transformations mean at the end of your description of a subscription model, Ron. Yeah, transformation. This is a I think this is one of the most powerful concepts in the book, and, and I borrowed heavily from Joseph Pine and James Gilmore in their book, The Experience Economy, which, by the right way, came out in 1997, so it's 25 years old, and it's still as relevant today. And we had Joe Pine on our podcast, and, you, and folks can listen to that interview, but they laid out a hierarchy of value where they said, you know, what happens when a commodity becomes commoditized? Well, you, you change it into a product, and, you know, you combine two commodities like flour and wheat, you make bread. Now, of course, we have rye bread and whole wheat and grain and all these and milk too. Um, but then what happens when your good becomes a commodity? Well, you wrap some services around it. Okay, well, what happens when your service becomes a commodity? Well, you try and create a customer experience, a theme, restaurants, Disney, what, whatever. But then the thing that intrigued me, even back in 97, was what happens when your experience becomes a commodity? And by the way, this Disney worried about, and they're still worried about this, you know, hey, been there, done that, right? That's when you know your experience has become a commodity. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, don't want to do that again. Um, they said the next level is transformation. So when you provide a transformation to a customer, you guide it. You don't provide it. You guide them. They have to want to change. They have to go from where they are to some desired future state. So if you think about the transformations in our lives, you know, we get married, we serve the military, we uh, get a, our CPA certificate. You know, we have memorabilia reflecting all this. Our certificate hangs on the wall. We wear a wedding ring, all these different things. It's that, it's that deep. It's that personal. 
Because when you provide or guide, I should say, when you guide transformations, the customers, the product, it's not about the services. The services are a means to an end. We need, we have a fetish about services. The more services, the more scope of work, the more employees, the, the customer adds, the more bank accounts, we have to increase our price. No, uh-uh, stop. This is customer abuse. They're not paying for the service. They're paying to help you guide them to maybe a better retirement, maybe to help them grow their business, maybe to get their kid into college, maybe to plan their legacy through estate and tax work. Those are all deeply, uh, deep personal transformations that literally touch the customer's soul. This is why we entered this profession. It wasn't to pile on services brick by brick like we're you know, like we're mason, uh, you know, bricklayers, it was to help people move to a better place to help them realize opportunities and possibilities. We spend a lot of time and I think too much time in this profession talking about solving problems. We're great, pro you know, wh what keeps you awake at night? Uh, let me help solve that problem. Well, okay, great. We're great problem solvers. We're, we like puzzles as accountants and all of that. And there's always going to be a role for that. But here's my challenge to everybody listening. If all you're doing for your customers is solving problems, you're reverting them back to the status quo. You're not progressing them. We need to start progressing our customers. This is great. We're going to bring it back for a part two, just to give more solutions to the challenges that you're outlining here. But I'm glad you're talking about experiences, Ron. I, I read a piece just recently where the traditional sports bar, picture that. I mean, it's an American thing, but we have it here in the UK too. Well, you go, you watch your team, you drink some beer. There's a big TV screen there. They're becoming experiential right now. So they're having a, a, a five-a-side football pitch, soccer pitch there, or you play some pickleball, or you it's not just the snooker and the pool table and the darts. They're wanting you to do something. So you get engaged in an experience. You you play a game, you have a little throw around or a bit of pickup basketball, and then you drink and eat afterwards if you want to. But this is the generation that are coming through now. They're paying for experiences rather than service. Right. And that is in Top Golf. You know, I think you have Top Golf over there too. And that's another example of that. Um, but but the great thing about this, Rob, is transformations that are another level. It's very hard for most product or service companies to to offer transformations because they're tied to a physical product. Porsche has got a subscription program called Porsche Drive. Now, Porsche is a phenomenal brand and it can help you through a midlife crisis, but it really can't transform you. It's still tied to a physical product. Starbucks now is opening up these things called Starbucks Reserve, and it's their way of plussing the, the whole you know, coffee experience that they created. Uh, Howard Schultz said Starbucks Reserve is the Willy Wonka of coffee. It's a much higher price. They offer many more things, you know, the, even alcohol, um, but they're still tied to a physical product. Professionals like us, CPAs, we're not tied to a physical product. We can offer serial transformations. We can do one after the other. And that's what I mean in that definition. We can help them grow their business. We can help them retire, get their kid into college, plan their legacy. All, we can do this throughout. So I think the new metric would be how many transformations have you guided for your customers? And those, those are intensely personal. They require work. They re require a lot of labor, a lot of face-to-face -face interaction. That's why we're here. That's why we joined this profession. So we can have a profound, deep impact on 
fewer customers than just providing services to you know a couple thousand. I, I just think that's not why we entered this. Nobody entered this profession to have the most customers and build the most hours and do the most tax returns. It's challenging, Ron. Absolutely. And I want to commend Time's Up from yourself and Paul Dunn to our readers. If they want to get a copy of the book, it's launched now, I believe, or soon to be launched. Where can they go to find out more? They can uh, go to thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. And in there, you can join the pre-order club. So if you do pre-order it, uh, you can send us your receipt and then we'll we'll give you some benefits. And we'll also invite you to our virtual event that Paul and I are doing along with Ed Class uh, on, I think it's December 12th is our first date. The book, <laughs> I'm trying to get clarity on this from the book because Amazon's driving me nuts. It keeps <laughs> changing the date. Um, it's supposed to be out December 8th. So I'm going to stick with that date. But um, that, that's the official launch date. I think in the UK, on Amazon.co.uk, it's coming out the end of January. So it's going to be a little bit longer until it hits there. Well, we're an international podcast, so we'll put this out before those times so people can pick it up, not just in the UK, but we have a heavy US audience here. And uh, we commend the book to the accounting profession as a manifesto for change. And we'll get you back on a, a part two just to talk a little bit more about what the, the revenue model and the subscription economy and this new movement means to accounting firms. But leave us, Ron, would you, to the accountants, CPAs, bookkeepers listening with um, some actions or some things to think about as the world around them changes and they fight for relevance. Yeah. Um, and I think when you, anytime you see disruption in the marketplace, you know, what Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction, it, it's manifested in business models. It's not manifested in new technology. You know, Andy Grove made this point, the, the, the late great founder of Intel. He said that the, the disruptive threats come from new business models, not from new technology. And Andy Grove was into both. <laughs> he knew something about technology. Um, so when you see Airbnb, when you see, uh, you know, Napster or, or uh, when you see uh, Pandora and all these music streaming services or you see Uber, these are all different business models. And when a business model changes, two things at least change. One, the pricing strategy changes. And so we go from you know, buying $20 CDs to buying 99 cents a song on iTunes. And now we're all streaming music on Pandora, Spotify, whatever. Um, but then also your KPIs change. What you measure changes inside the organization. And this is the cha one change that I don't think a lot of people understand. They go, oh, we can move from hourly billing to value pricing, but we can still keep all of our own, all of our same metrics. No, you can't. If you're really doing a business model, you have to change the metrics as well. And subscription requires even new accounting. Gap doesn't understand subscription either, by the way. It does a really crappy job because it's always trying to match things. And so I would, I would um, advise people to really examine their business model and say, is this really going to carry us into the future, um, whether we're value pricing or hourly billing? And if if not, if you, you think that the answer to that is no, um, then <laughs> you need to re-examine your business model. Because here here's how I think about this, Rob. Um, Teen Zoe, the founder of Zora, who's one of the great authors in, of subscription, he's the guy that coined the term the subscription economy. He said, in five years' time, you won't buy anything. You'll subscribe to everything. Now, I don't agree with that. I think in five years' time, you'll have the option to subscribe to everything, including your doctor, your accountant, your lawyer. And even if you don't change anything about your firm, you're going to have to, you're going to confront that problem in the marketplace because there's going to be outfits that do offer that. And that's what we need to do. We, we need to realize that you know, the world is changing. Econ and this is an economic revolution. 
Economic revolutions don't care about your feelings. They don't care about your legacy systems. They don't care about your fear of it not being done. There's people out there doing it. The model's been proven. So I would encourage people to take a strong look at subscription because it puts the relationship at the center of the firm, which is why we entered this profession to begin with. It's amazing, Ron. I'm just going to finish with another quote from the book from Anne Lanza, uh, Ayanza from Subscription Marketing. Uh, a quote that you'll know well in five years, you'll have the option of subscribing to everything and every business will have to accommodate that fact. We can't escape this now, can we? I don't think so. I mean, I, the, the list of things that we can subscribe to is growing every day. Ed and I can't keep up with it and we try on our show. I mean, I can, I can subscribe to a boat from Brunswick. I can subscribe to a home in 40 some odd countries. I think with Rome, I can subscribe to a direct primary care physician or a concierge doctor here in the United States. I mean, and all of these entities that where I can I can subscribe to a fleet of Porsches, not just one Porsche. I can have access to nine different models, and I can swap out every day, and they'll white glove it out to my home or my office, and I can do that as much as I want. And they pay for everything. They they've they've reduced the cognitive load, they've reduced the hassle, they've made it frictionless, convenient, all of those things. Uh, why wouldn't I do this? When you think about ownership of something, a car, home, you have all this baggage that comes with it. You have to repair it. You have to provide maintenance. You have to, you know, worry about disposing it, blah, blah, with subscription. If my refrigerator breaks, they just come out with a new one. So I want to be able to subscribe to Apple someday. I shouldn't have to buy SKUs from Apple. That's, that, I don't care about their SKUs. I, of course, I want all their SKUs. But why can't it be subscribed to? So they just send me a laptop every three years. They send me a new iPhone every year when the new one comes out, new watch, whatever it is. I should just be able to subscribe to them. It, ownership is, is kind of an albatross and subscription is trying to change what you're paying for. So the revenue model question. It's a call to change for the accounting profession. We'll get you back on part two to talk about more. Ron Becker for the moment, thank you so much for your passion and your insights. Influencers Broadcast Network presents Influencers in Accounting. Your access to world-class accounting leaders, global influencers and thought leaders. Discover what makes accounting firms great and accounting professionals world-class. Thank you for listening to this new talent in accounting podcast. This is a relatively new show, but already has over a thousand listeners. So we appreciate you tuning in and sharing the show with your connections. If you have a potentially good guest you'd like to see on the show with some great insights on talent, reach out to me on LinkedIn with a message and we'll follow them up. And as we build this show up, we're looking for a couple of sponsors for whom talent and the accounting finance space is important. Loads of great opportunities to get your brand out there and show your key messages and even get some of your own guests on the show. Again, drop me a message on LinkedIn to tee up that conversation. And for great podcast content elsewhere, make sure you subscribe to our main show, Accounting Influencers, goes out every Monday. And join the 40,000 listeners in 150 countries for brilliant interviews with the top leaders, experts, and influencers in the accounting and fintech world. Finally, why don't you join us and our community with some conversations at our next virtual speed networking session. These are now taking place every two months for accounting, finance, and tech professionals. 75 minutes of speed dating, great discussions, raising your personal profile, making new connections. Go to accountinginfluencers.com 
to register your free place for our next event. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day.